This is the weekly for Friday, August the 30th. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Americans love their movies, and Hollywood loves movies about Washington. From an idealistic young senator and Mr. Smith goes to Washington, to all the president's men and the Watergate scandal, we look at some of the most iconic moments from a long list of movies that portray presidents, Congress, and American politics. Ted Johnson's website is dchollywood.com. He can be heard on SiriusXM, the POTUS Channel 124. He also writes for thedeadline.com. Ted Johnson, I have to begin by saying I've done a lot of interviews, but I'm really excited about this one. Hollywood and politics, what's not to like? (laughs) Sure, it's a fascinating beat. Why over the years has there been such a fascination with Washington, D.C. and politics in Hollywood? I think it's uh, these are both centers of power, so they share that in common. Uh, This is they're both communities of very public figures and more and more what we're seeing in Washington Uh, These are communities of celebrities, not just public servants, but actually people who may already have made a name for themselves before entering the arena. Or, uh, as we see with people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, became celebrities because of the way that they got to Capitol Hill or perhaps uh, we'll see in the future got to the White House. So many movies over the years. Do you have a favorite Yes, mine is Mr. Smith Goes to Washington for a number of reasons. I mean, we view this as kind of this uh, patriotic, even sappy at times movie. But if you watch it, it's actually a very cynical movie about the way that Washington works. In fact, if you go back in the history of this movie, uh, there was so much anger when it was released. Frank Capra, who's the director, actually came uh, for a screening and uh, he was practically run out of town. That's just based on what he wrote in his biography. And there, for a moment, there was even this attempt to um, have the movie banned. Uh, the Senate was so upset over the way that it was portrayed. And if you watch the movie, it's a cesspool. The Senate is a cesspool. It's, it's kind of inherently corrupt. And it's Jimmy Stewart as Jefferson, Jefferson Smith who's trying to uh, personally uh, change uh, the dynamics of the Senate. You know, the movie ends with this this great filibuster, uh, and he uh, he ultimately prevails. But um, but it, it is more cynical than you may remember, uh, because we always look back at that movie as the one we had to watch in high school civics class. And of course, the timing of that film back in 1939, uh, just before the start of World War II, and that is on our list. But I want to begin. With Michael Douglas, 1995, The American President. Listen closely to what he is saying. America isn't easy. America is advanced citizenship. You've got to want it bad because it's going to put up a fight. It's going to say, you want free speech? Let's see you acknowledge a man whose words make your blood boil, who's standing center stage and advocating at the top of his lungs that which you would spend a lifetime opposing at the top of yours. You want to claim this land is a land of the free? Then the symbol of your country cannot just be a flag. The symbol also has to be one of its citizens exercising his right to burn that flag in protest. Now show me that. Defend that. Celebrate that in your classroom. 
Then you can stand up and sing about the land of the free. I've known Bob Rumson for years, and I've been operating under the assumption that the reason Bob devotes so much time and energy to shouting at the rain was that he simply didn't get it. Well, I was wrong. Bob's problem isn't that he doesn't get it. Bob's problem is that he can't sell it. We have serious problems to solve, and we need serious people to solve them. And whatever your particular problem is, I promise you, Bob Rumson is not the least bit interested in solving it. He is interested in two things, and two things only, making you afraid of it and telling you who's to blame for it. That, ladies and gentlemen, is how you win elections. That was nearly 25 years ago, but boy, the parallels to 2019 and 2020... Sure, sure thing. I mean, sometimes uh, I think we look back at these political movies, especially those made long ago, and we think uh, it it was a simpler time. It was a more innocent time, and politics uh, were— were pure or were purer at the point at that point. But as I mentioned with movies like Mr. Smith goes to Washington or even the American president, uh, they they really did have a view of politics, uh, even of the president present day as uh, kind of full of corruption, full of people who were demagogues. Uh, and these movies were a response to that. Uh, the American president was made. I think in the mid '90s, uh, and uh, I always view it as kind of a Hollywood response to the way the politics should be, not the way that they are at the time. Clinton was in office. We saw the rise of the new Gingrich right, uh, and this movie. It was directed by Rob Reiner, written by Aaron Sorkin. Uh, it actually was kind of a prelude to what we were going to see coming out of the entertainment industry in the years to come. The West Wing. Uh, was a big hit in 1999, and this was, I, I often think the West Wing was inspired by this, in this kind of uh, portrayal of politics and the, the lofty ideal, what it, what it should be. I was actually at an event once uh, with Gary Hart, and uh, this topic came to films like uh, The American President and then The West Wing, and uh, he kind of said wistfully, you know, that that's that's the way I wanted my presidency to be if he ever made it to office. So I think it's very interesting that uh, that these movies come out and there's really a connection that uh, not just the general public has with it, but but also with the politicians. You know, they they maybe measure, you know, where they are based on the storylines of these pictures. And of course, today, many compare the Trump presidency to the reality presidency, the reality TV presidency. Yeah, I mean, it's almost uh, as if, yeah, there. I think that this this movie, you know, you look back at this movie and even other movies, and you can you can see how they kind of warned uh, the public about what actually might be ha- ahead. Uh, I have to say, the Trump presidency probably carried uh, this warning that uh, that Michael Douglas says in this movie carried it to the nth degree. Um, uh, the kind of loudest voice in the room. Uh, I think we're seeing that play out right now. And I, I have to say, I, I very much doubt that Aaron Sorkin and Rob Reiner uh, could conceive of a rally, reality TV presidency at the time, given that you know we really didn't have uh, uh, the rise of reality TV at the time. Uh, but I think there was enough there where they could actually uh, kind of give this this warning of what might be ahead. 
One of the most iconic campaign movies came out in 1972. Robert Rudford, the candidate running for the U.S. Senate, and this moment. Okay, we've got about 60 seconds of privacy before they find out we're here now. So uh, what's on your mind, Senator? I don't know. Okay, we got to get out of there. See, I told you they'd be Marvin? What do we do now? Wait a minute, wait a minute, what? And that's basically how the film ends. <laughs> it's one of the great endings of all political films. Uh, I think that this movie really struck a chord at the time because uh, we saw the influence of television. I uh, had, you know, this by by 1972, television was a part of campaigns. And this is all about uh, the kind of imagery and stagecraft and also kind of the 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 vapid uh, campaign slogans that had kind of infected uh, political discourse at the time. It's uh, it's uh, Robert Redford as the candidate repeating over and over again this line, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way. That's what stands out to me. Um, it, I also find it interesting that there was some inspiration uh, in this movie from an actual California Senate candidate, candidate John Tunney, who actually won and served in the Senate for a while. Uh, and I think Tunney even commented on this at uh, at one point. Uh, he passed away a few years ago. but um, He served one term. One term, one term. Okay, yeah, in California. And, um, and I think, uh, again, we're talking about how these movies can sometimes predict the future. Uh, this was very much kind of a forerunner of what we're going to what we were going to see we had already seen it in presidential politics but you certainly started to see it at the senate level and then to a certain extent the house level we're going to move from robert redford to jimmy stewart but one side note some of the best actors in the business playing senators and presidents Yes, yes. Uh, you mean uh, in uh, Michael Douglas? Oh, Michael Robert Douglas. Redford, yeah, that's Jimmy right. Stewart, that's right. Harrison Ford. Yeah, and I think that speaks to uh, you. Talk to actors, and what do they like? They like roles that are layered. They always say we like roles that are full of nuance. And what better uh, character than a politician, than a senator, uh, where you have your public persona, but then you also have your private persona. And so many politicians have that. And I think that's what really draws a lot of top name actors, the most recent being uh, Hugh Jackman uh, playing playing Gary Hart uh, in a movie that came out last year, The Front Runner. Your favorite film, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, 1939, and one of the closing scenes. Let's listen. I guess this is just another lost cause, Mr. Payne. You people don't know about lost causes. Mr. Payne does. He said once they were the only causes worth fighting for. And he fought for them once. For the only reason any man ever fights for them. Because of just one plain, simple rule. Love thy neighbor. And in this world today, full of hatred, a man who knows that one rule has a great trust. You know that rule, Mr. Payne. 
And I loved you for it just as my father did. And you know that you fight for the lost causes harder than for any others. Yes, you even die for them. Like a man we both knew, Mr. Payne. You think I'm licked? You all think I'm licked? Well, I'm not licked. And I'm gonna stay right here and fight for this lost cause. Even if this room gets filled with lies like these. And the tailors and all their armies come marching into this place. Somebody will listen to me. You're smiling as you listen to this. You probably know the film by heart. <laughs> yeah, I've seen it many times. Another reason I like this movie is uh, when I got to Washington, I went up to the Senate press gallery, and I was so impressed that the press gallery looks just like it did in the movie. Obviously a film set, but uh, but they really did kind of recreate it. All these years later, they, it still has that, that kind of uh, 1930s feel. Why Jimmy Stewart in that role, and how did Mr. Smith Comes to Washington come about? Well, actually, Jimmy Stewart was not supposed to play the role. Uh, it was actually originally intended to be a sequel to a movie called Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, which starred Gary Cooper at the time. And that's uh, that's how Frank Capra originally envisioned it, uh, where Mr. Deeds would be going to Washington, D.C. Um, I'm not quite sure of what happened, but uh, eventually Jimmy Stewart got cast uh, in the lead uh, of the movie. And I think he he just it, it, you watch it and he has this great sense of innocence. Uh, it's it's the old fish out of water tale. This was probably one of the earlier ones uh, uh, in uh, in uh, movies that we saw. But uh, that is repeated over and over and over again. I also think that it is kind of um, a storyline. I, I call it kind of the myth of Mr. Smith. Uh, because we uh, we now uh, see it as an advantage for a candidate, particularly at the presidential level, but even at the Senate level, to uh, tout that they have no experience in Washington. They haven't been corrupted by the system. They're an innocent that are is coming coming to the Capitol, coming to the White House, and they're going to change things. They're going to shake things up. Uh, now, that happens in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, but in reality, we've seen it played out over and over again where those types of candidates who have no real uh, track record come to D.C. and the system ends up corrupting them. Uh, that's That seems to be the the more likely scenario. That's why I call it the the myth of Mr. Smith. But we still see campaigns kind of turning to this movie and and embracing it even. Uh, I remember back in, in 2008, uh, they held a screening. The Obama campaign held a screening in Los Angeles of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And Aaron Sorkin actually was there. He was one of the speakers, and they all talked about how Obama reminded them of Mr. Smith. Uh, and um, uh, But we also saw you know some people comparing Trump to Mr. Smith when he came in. Uh, so it just speaks to the whole idea that one person can drain the swamp when in reality we know it's a lot more complicated. And it's Jimmy Stewart. I mean, my comparison, he's he's kind of comparable in my mind to Tom Hanks, just the diversity and the breadth of the skills that he had in the films that he was in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you look at his 
his film career. I mean, you know, we, we're talking about the innocent roles, but look at a movie like Vertigo, where he played uh, uh, this uh, obsessed character uh, one of the great movies of all time and probably Hitchcock's best movie uh, or all the westerns that he did uh, Shenandoah I saw one of my favorite Jimmy Stewart westerns um, people I, I think sometimes uh, dismiss uh, Jimmy Stewart as this kind of one note actor but in reality uh, he was not that he actually had quite adept to his performance uh, in contrast to uh, quite a few of his his contemporaries. How do you combine the American presidency with an action movie? Well, that came out in Air Force One, 1997, Harrison Ford. Tonight I come to you with a pledge to change America's policy. Atrocity and terror are not political weapons. And to those who would use them, your day is over. In a speech tonight in Moscow, the president issued a direct challenge to terrorist nations around the world. But the question remains, what are the risks involved in such a bold policy initiative? They hated your speech, didn't they? We're afraid we won't have the guts to back it up. Air Force One, clear for takeoff. Thank you for your hospitality, Moscow. Where's my family? The president's plane, Air Force One, has been hijacked. What do they want? They want General Raddick released from prison. I will execute the hostage every half an hour. What are our airborne scenarios? There are no airborne scenarios. My husband will not negotiate. His wife, his daughter, I think he'll negotiate. How the hell did this happen? How the hell did they get Air Force One? Your national security advisor has been executed. He just bought you another half hour. Sir, your parachute. I'm not leaving without my family. Ted Johnson, what did you think of this film? <laughs> well, it's what a great idea. First of all, you say Air Force One, uh, put it in a movie poster and uh, give it some lettering that it makes it clear that it's an action thriller. And people pretty much know what it's all about uh, immediately. So in terms of marketing, what uh, what an ingenious scenario. I thought it was a thrilling very, very thrilling movie. Not my favorite political film, but uh, I actually thought uh, quite uh, quite creative in, in the whole idea of the president as an action hero. Let's move to history in the 1860s. Doris Kearns Goodwin said that there had been more books written about Abraham Lincoln than any other U.S. president. Of course, her book, Team of Rivals, became the genesis of the film with Daniel Day-Lewis. It was released in 2012, winning all kinds of awards Here's part of then-President Lincoln's speech as portrayed by actor Daniel Day-Lewis. I can't listen to this anymore. I can't accomplish a goddamn thing of any human meaning or worth until we cure ourselves of slavery and end this pestilential war. And whether any of you or anyone else knows it, I know I need this. This amendment is that cure. We're stepped out upon the world stage now. Now! With the fate of human dignity in our hands. Blood's been spilled to afford us this moment. Now! 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 Just one excerpt from the film Lincoln and uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin indicating that when he was portraying Lincoln, Daniel Day-Lewis wanted to be referred to as Mr. President or President Lincoln. He was very much in the character. 
and it shows from this movie. I think this is a, um, it's a tough role to pull off because everyone has their preconceived notion of who Lincoln is. Um, and uh, almost like an American saint. I mean, that's how, how he's viewed in history. So um, Daniel Day-Lewis, it speaks to his acting ability that this movie did so well uh, because it easily could have, he easily could have fell flat on his face. I love the vocal, you know, the the sound of Lincoln. If you watch this movie, that's the first thing that stands out because to most people, they look at the, they hear it and they think, wow, his voice is much higher uh, than, than I remember it. It's much higher than Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln at Disneyland. But um, uh, but if you, I think it may have been Doris Kearns Goodwin that actually said that, that that was his actual voice, you know, based on what historians have said, said at the time uh, and witnesses said at the time is that was actually Lincoln's voice. So, I mean, I think that speaks to the authenticity of this movie. Another thing that I thought really stood out about Lincoln was it kind of redefined the way that biopics were made, especially biopics about political figures that are legendary in history. Uh, Don't try to do their whole life. Focus on several weeks uh, in their life that really uh, illuminate who that person was. And they certainly did that here. I had this big fear that, that Lincoln would try, you know, we'd just be going from one one scenario to the next. But then when I heard it, that this movie actually takes place of uh, in the span of just a couple of weeks, uh, I think it worked a lot better than had they, they tried to cover uh, his whole life and career. And much of it filmed in Richmond. Those who are down there watching it say it very much looked like the 1860s. But you also really get a sense of what our 16th president was up against and why he today is viewed as, if not the greatest president, certainly one of the top three or four great presidents in our country's history. Yeah, I also I also think it would be fascinating. Uh, I wouldn't call it a sequel, but another chapter if 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 they could ever do, you know, other aspects of his career, because certainly uh, certainly uh, it warrants it. Uh, This one, I think, uh, really uh, spoke to uh, a moment of American history that a lot of people just don't understand and don't quite get, uh, even if they had a lot of education in that period. Uh, I think that this was kind of a reminder of what it was actually like in the White House uh, at that moment in 1865. From the triumphs of the Lincoln presidency to what many call the Shakespearean tragedy of the Nixon presidency, and of course, another iconic film, one of my favorites, All the President's Men, that came out in 1976, and uh, the characters of Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman. Here's the trailer. Hold it, you mother! Hold it! Please! There's been a break-in at Democratic headquarters, and they were bugging the place. Woodward, Bernstein, you're both on the story now. Don't get out. Redford. I'm Bob Woodward of the Washington Post. Mr. Markham, are you here in connection with the Watergate burglary? I'm not here. Hoffman. Hi, uh, this is Carl Bernstein of the Washington Post, and I was just wondering if you can remember... All the President's Men. The story of the two young reporters who cracked the Watergate conspiracy. White House. Howard Hunt, please. He might be in Mr. Colson's office. Who's Charles Colson? Did you know uh, Howard Hunt? Well, the White House said he was doing some investigative work. What do you say? 
they stumbled into Leeds. Certainly it comes as no surprise to you that Howard was with the CIA. No, no surprise at all. They tripped over clues. We'd like to see all the material requested by the White House. All White House transactions are confidential. This whole thing is a cover-up. It's right on our nose. And piece by piece, they solve the greatest detective story in American history. There is no way the White House can control the investigation. I, I don't want to say anymore, okay? Have you been threatened if you tell the truth? Is there a cover-up? Don't you understand what you're on to? Mitchell knew? Of course, Mitchell knew. Woodward! Bernstein! Get in here! At times, it looked as if it might cost them their jobs. You guys are about to write a story that says the former attorney general, the highest-ranking law enforcement officer in this country, is a crook. Their reputations. Why is the Post trying to do it? I don't know. Perhaps even their lives. This film really does have it all, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think this is the greatest journalism movie that has been made. Uh, not just uh, one of the great political films, uh, but you heard it in the trailer where they called this a detective story. I think that's right on the mark, and that speaks to why this works so well. It plays out like a mystery and a thriller. You know the ending, but there's this great sense of paranoia, the David Shire score, uh, obviously the meetings with Deep Throat. Uh, there's this great scene where... Uh, Bob Woodward, uh, played by Robert Redford, uh, thinks he's being followed and is running, you know, running away. You know, it, it, it's just I think in uh, in other hands, uh, this movie may have uh, ended up to be maybe not a disaster, but kind of a forgettable movie of the 70s. But this came during a time when we saw a number of different political thrillers like the parallax view in the conversation and I think that they happened to get a director who was very intrigued Ellen J. Pakula who was very intrigued in the in the uh, in the idea of making a, a political movie and a true political movie that fit into that genre and the Washington Post uh, had the headline by a piece of history Bob Woodward's DuPont Circle apartment which was an efficiency at the time was on the market that's where he planted the flag when he wanted to speak to deep throat and of course the parking garage which is right across the river in roslyn virginia recently demolished part of the renovation project in that part of uh, northern virginia yeah we're seeing these little bits of dc history disappear with uh, with development or or uh uh, pop up from time to time. Uh, I was kind of uh, dismayed over the whole parking garage. I never got a chance to see it. I just, I just wanted to go out and see what it was like. And the premiere of the film in 1976 here in Washington at the Kennedy Center. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Well, there, there's also some great uh, stories about uh, the making of this movie, how, how the set designers came into the Washington Post newsroom and, and, even, and uh, just recreated it on a set in Los Angeles at Warner Brothers Studios in Los Angeles and even took some of the garbage from the Post newsrooms just so it would be that authentic. Um, that set actually was sold off to a publication uh, as I understand it, called New West. It was a magazine based in L.A., uh, and they actually used that that set as their offices for, for a number of years. So uh, the movie had a number of different legacies. And the Howard Johnson is no longer there, but the building is still there directly across from the Watergate. And, of course, uh, at times you could go back and imagine what it was like in June of 1972 as that uh, the undercover cops arrived and they didn't realize who they were. And, of course, the rest is history. Sure. I mean, there's a there's a whole um, 
uh, I mean, the movie is timeless, but there's a whole kind of period aspect to it. Uh, that I just love the cars the, too. Yeah, the, love cars, the cars. Yeah, the mid mid nineteen seventies, and the movie is just kind of understated. You know, um, the score, as I mentioned, um, uh, isn't overpowering. Compare it to a movie they they made a movie a couple of years ago about Mark Felt, uh, who was Deep Throat, and it was all from his perspective, and it was just so overblown. I thought, uh, just didn't have it, uh, com- especially compared to all the president's men. Let me remind our listeners that we are talking with Ted Johnson. He is heard on Sirius XM. He is a contributor to Deadline.com. What is your background, and, and why is this your passion? Well, my background, uh, actually, uh, at uh, early in my career, I covered politics out in Southern California for the L.A. Times, uh, and then I wanted to cover entertainment. Uh, uh, in the mid-2000s, uh, uh, I was at Variety, and... Uh, the editor came and said, hey, we need to all start blogs. So I started a blog that was all about entertainment and politics, and that uh, it kind of fused these two experiences I had in my career. I just thought it was a fascinating moment. I, the whole idea that candidates uh, were coming to Hollywood all the time to raise money, I thought, hey, that's a whole uncovered part of of the 2008 race that was was what was unfolding at the time so that's really what got me interested and i'm probably just as fascinated by the pursuit of power as any other political journalist and the website of course is dchollywood.com all the presence men revisited came out several years later let's listen good evening president nixon reportedly will announce his resignation tonight Vice President Ford will become the nation's 38th president tomorrow. That word comes unofficially from aides and associates of... The president has been part of politics for 28 years now, part of the national political scene for about 24 of those years, and this appears to be the final day of his administration. Tonight at 9 o'clock Eastern Daylight Time, the president of the United States will address the nation concerning developments today and over the last few days. This has, of course, been a difficult time. This is indeed an historic day, the only time a president has ever resigned from office in our nearly 200 years of history. You see the White House there, and in just a few moments now, President Nixon will be appearing before the people, perhaps for the last time as president of the United States. Have you got an extra camera in case the lights go out? This was much worse than we thought. Nixon was worse than we thought. What happened was worse than we thought. He violated the law. He compromised the office. And he left a deep and wide black mark in American presidential history. And yet, regardless of how you feel of President Nixon... It is a tragedy. It's a personal tragedy, and that comes across in this latest film. Yeah, this was uh, All the President's Men Revisited was a documentary that was actually produced by Robert Redford as kind of a follow-up to All the President's Men. Which ends on the day of his resignation. Exactly. And I think it kind of came in the wake. There was this period in the early 90s. I mentioned I covered politics, and I remember covering the opening of the Nixon Library, and Nixon was there with all the presidents. And there was this period where, uh, and then when he passed away, there was this period where there was kind of this revisionist of 
of how Nixon was being viewed, uh, that the whole idea was, well, maybe things weren't as bad uh, as they were made out to be. Uh, that was he was perhaps even given an unfair shake, maybe from the media, maybe from the Democrats, maybe from the opposition. Um, and um, uh, the problem is they were still releasing the tapes. And as the tapes continued to come out uh, and uh, right up until very recently, I think we've seen, uh, as you heard Carl Bernstein say, it was a lot worse than actually was reported at the time. And I think that that was probably some motivation for doing this documentary is to actually kind of uh, set the record of history straight. One of the great directors and great character actors, Ron Howard, who came up with the film Nixon Frost in 2008, but set the stage for this film. Uh, Who played Richard Nixon and how it came about? Uh, Richard Nixon was played by Frank Langella, a great, great performance. And this is uh, this you could also view as kind of a follow up to all the president's men and all the president's men revisited because it takes place several years after Nixon has resigned. He's kind of in exile in San Clemente. Uh, and then you have uh, David Frost, uh, who is not part of the mainstream media. He's almost he's like this entertainment personality, this entertainment journalist. Uh, and uh, he's played by Michael Sheen and um, kind of out of nowhere, he uh, approaches Nixon and makes this deal for the interview of the century, uh, the, his first sit down interview since leaving office. And this is what the movie is all about is is how uh, how Frost got the interview and how ultimately it played out. Uh, I think uh, as you uh, as you watch it, you realize that Nixon really did think that he would just be asked these softball questions from this entertainment journalist. Instead, Frost did a lot of homework and a lot of preparation and got Nixon to say a lot of things that he wasn't expecting to say. And by the end, you see this really almost this common bond between Nixon and Frost that is established uh, for um, for a, on a number of levels, uh, probably a lot having to do with uh, with uh, the discomfort that each of them feels to a certain extent in the public eye. Which should also point out that uh, former President Nixon was paid for the interviews. Uh, he needed the money, so that was a motivating force for Richard Nixon. But this is one exchange from the film, and again, Michael Sheen, who is playing David Frost, and he is referring to former White House Chief of Staff Bob Haldeman and Chief Advisor John Ehrlichman regarding the cover-up. Maybe I should have done that. Maybe I should have just called the feds into my office and said, hey, there's the two men. Haul them down to the dock, fingerprint them, and then throw them in the can. I'm not made that way. These men, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, I knew their families. I knew them since they were just kids. Oh, yeah, but you know, politically, the pressure on me to let them go, that became overwhelming. So I did it. I cut off one arm, then I cut off the other, and I'm not a good butcher. And I have always maintained what they were doing, what we were all doing, was not criminal. Look, when you're in office, you got to do a lot of things sometimes that are not always, in the strictest sense of the law, legal. But you do them because they're in the greater interests of the nation. Right, wait, just so I understand correctly. Are you really saying that in certain situations, the president can decide whether it's in the best interests of the nation, and then... Do something illegal. I'm saying that when the president does it, that means it's not illegal. 
there you have one of the great lines that came out of those uh, came out of those interviews. Um, I remember watching it uh, and not quite understanding it, uh, but knowing that this was a big historic moment. Um, and uh, it's funny. I think they 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 kind of hold up uh, kind of an archive of what Nixon was like at that moment in time. He obviously gave many, many other interviews since then. Uh, but you do have to credit David Frost for for actually, you know, kind of piercing uh uh, piercing this this cover that uh, Nixon had following Watergate and getting him riled up like that. Um, uh, and one other thing that I love about the movie is just the uh, Frank Langella's performance, the awkwardness that Nixon had. Uh, it just comes through how it's almost like he was just so uncomfortable in his own skin. There's there's these great scenes where Nixon is kind of fixated on these kind of flashy shoes that uh, Michael Sheen as David Frost is wearing throughout the movie. And it it kind of uh, plays a part in the uh, in the final climax of the movie. And all the president's men came out just a couple of years after Richard Nixon resigned the presidency. Nixon Frost came out about 30 years after he had uh, done the interviews with David Frost. And I mention that because I'm curious, as you look at where we are today, where the Trump presidency is, how Hollywood will view this point in time. (laughs) That's a very interesting thing. I mean, the one thing about uh, they they probably would be well advised to wait a couple of years before doing a Trump movie. Um, uh, I think All the President's Men is kind of the exception of a movie that did really well at the box office uh, so quickly after Watergate ended. At a point when a lot of people just wanted to forget Watergate, certainly the Ford administration, Ford was in office at the time, wanted to forget Watergate. But there's many other movies that have come out even during these presidencies that have not done so well. Uh, Primary Colors, uh, which has had a lot of allusions to the Clinton administration, came out in 1998, and it was a bomb at the box office. W, made by Oliver Stone, about George W. Bush, came out at towards the end of his term and did not do that well at the box office. So I think that they they probably would be well advised to wait a little bit and get some perspective on the Trump administration. Uh, But I can tell you this, whatever is done, it's not going to be good. (laughs) Ted Johnson, my final question, and this is like asking a parent uh, who is your favorite child, but as you look over the years of those actors, and so far they've all been men, who have played American presidents in film, do you have a favorite? Oh, who have played the American? I, I I really do think it's Daniel Day Lewis as Abraham Lincoln because I came away so impressed. Uh, as I said, that that he was able to pay, pull off a role that people had these great preconceived notions of, and uh, and make you really do, th- and he really made you think uh, that is Lincoln. Uh, I, I just I think that one absolutely stands out. For those who want to follow you on social media, how can they do so? Oh, follow me at Ted Stew, T-E-D-S-T-E-W, on Twitter. Ted Johnson. The website is dchollywood.com. And like I said, I'm excited about this interview and even more excited to have the conversation with you. Thank you for stopping by the C-SPAN studios. Thank you so much. And a reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app or wherever you get your favorite podcast. We thank you for listening. 